The foe Ferris Bueller kidnaps the king. While Diane Keaton goes to court to keep custody of her daughter. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. This is uh, Out of Touchstone, and that is The King. And we had no shortage of Elvis Presley songs to use for our intro. I specifically chose a song called His Latest Flame, which is actually my favorite Elvis Presley song. My name is Mike DeKalb, and across the table from me, my co-host, Chad Smart. Chad, where do you come down on Elvis Presley? Did you grow up with his music? Were you a fan? I, I have an aunt who's a huge fan, okay. and my uncle actually met Elvis when he was... Elvis was going coming, I believe, coming out of the army, and my uncle was going into the army, really? something like that. So they had like a brief meeting. Um, I've been to Graceland when I was ten years old. Nice. There's my Elvis um, knowledge, I guess. I, <laughs> I, I I am not a fan per se. Like, yeah. I, again, I can. Res- he's kind of like the Beatles. I can respect his place in music history. Sure. Do I own any albums? No. Would I go see him if he was on tour when he comes out as still being alive? Probably not. Yeah, you know, they're doing all those hologram tours. And Roy Orbison, I think it was a Buddy Holly one. I wonder why they don't do an Elvis one. Is it just a rights issue or, or something? I grew up in a house. My, my mother was a huge Elvis fan. She passed it on to my sister as well. And then I, when my, my mother passed away, we were going through all of her CDs. And I acquired a two-disc Elvis Presley collection that was every top 10 hit he ever had and it's been kind of fun to go back and listen to them recently after having watched the movie and you know some of these songs are pretty great and one of them of course is like one of his first singles for the RCA record label which is the namesake of our first movie um, this was the very first movie that touched on movie that I ever saw in a theater I don't remember exactly when it was because I saw it in a military base and those theaters tended to get movies months after they were in wide release but it was released Two theaters on September the 30th of 1988, and it's called Heartbreak Hotel. From Touchstone Pictures, Johnny thought he was the only rock and roll rebel until there he, is. he met the original when they got together. You and your band are going to back me up. They shook up a town. Those guys hate rock and roll. Well, that'll make it more fun, won't it? Red, set, go, and go. And now they're making rock and roll history. Heartbreak Hotel. A rock and roll fantasy, rated PG-13. Starts Friday at a theater near you. The film was written and directed by Chris Columbus. If that name sounds familiar to our Touchstone listeners. Touchstoners, I'm deciding we're going to call them from now on. Uh, He had directed Adventures in Babysitting for Touchstone the year before. But this was his first time serving both as a writer and director of the same film. Um, As far as the cast is concerned... David Keith, who plays Elvis, his career began in the late 70s. He, was, um, he had gotten some feature roles in The Great Santini and also in The Rose with Bette Midler. And then he followed that up with movies like Brubaker, the Robert Redford jail movie, um, An Officer and a Gentleman, which I think kind of gave him kind of gave him some wide acclaim. And then I remember him from, he was Drew Barrymore's father in the Stephen King adaptation Firestarter. Um, and then he had two prior, two prior credits before Heartbreak Hotel, both of them from 1988. One was called White of the Eye, and there was another one which he directed that was called The Further Adventures of Tennessee Buck. I, I didn't know he was a director. Apparently he directed another movie in 1987 called The Curse. And he was, these are totally low-budget indie-type films. Um, as Chad mentioned, the faux Ferris Bueller, that, of course, is Charlie Schlatter. I've heard it pronounced Schlater, Schlatter. Uh, I've heard it both ways. Could it be Schlatter? I don't know. We all remember him later. He, he was the TV version of Ferris Bueller. Um, but he had only had two prior acting credits, and they were also films released in 1988. And that was um, Bright Lights, Big City, the Michael J. Fox movie, and then 18 Again. Both those movies came out in April of 1988. I mentioned 18 again because 
I remember that movie where he swaps bodies or his spirit, the spirit of George Burns goes into Charlie Schlatter. And it's funny when you watch Heartbreak Hotel, I just, I think of him as sort of that old man, George Burns in the young man's body. Yeah. That was, you know, at the height of Hollywood originality when you had 18 again, like father, like son, vice versa. All Freaky Friday had been done a couple of times. Had done or the year yeah. before, you know, several years before. Yeah, they just like wait, they did that with women. We got to make this guy movie, so yes. they did three or four guy movies, body swatch, swat. <laughs> the last, uh, the last actor we'll mention is uh, Tuesday Weld, which is one of those names. I just feel like we, you've heard it all your life, and I, I but I couldn't pick her out of a lineup. I guess. Um, she'd had a very lengthy career. She'd been working since the late 1950s. I read that her father died when she was four and her mother put her to work as a model and she changed her name when she was 16. Her, her original name was Susan. Uh, she had done lots of TV work. There was, she did, she did the uh, show, the many loves of Dobie Gillis. And she was also on the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. And then she had done a lot of film work. I remember her like later in life. I saw this movie called The Cincinnati Kid, which I highly recommend to anybody listening. This is Norman Jewison directing Steve McQueen playing cards against um, Ever G. Robinson is in it. Just great. And she's like the Anna Margaret is also in it as well. And Tuesday Well plays George uh, Steve McQueen's love interest. And she was also in uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is stars the second film we're going to talk about today. And uh, Tuesday Well got an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress for Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Interestingly enough, she starred opposite Elvis Presley himself in a movie in 1961 called Wild in the Country. And supposedly, while they were making that movie, the two had an affair. In the 1980s, she would go on to movies like Thief, the James Caan, I think it's Michael Mann directed that one. And she also did the movie Author, Author with uh, Al Pacino. The last movie that she had done before Heartbreak Hotel was in 1984, the epic Once Upon a Time in America. And her last on-screen credit was a TV movie from 1986 called Something in Common. I thought it was interesting as far as her personal life. I read that she had dated Mikhail Baryshnikov, which we mentioned that on our country episode that he had had a child with Jessica Lange. And Tuesday Weld and Jessica Lange were like best friends. And so they, he, Tuesday Weld dated Mikhail Baryshnikov after Jessica Lange and they had broken up. So that's a little weird dynamic. Okay, as far as the film itself is concerned, I, I thought it was interesting, like, right off the bat, because you know it seems like a silly premise, this kid's going to kidnap Elvis, but it tells you right in the prologue that, you know, this is a fable, and, it's, and it's, I, thought it was, I thought it was kind of a nice setup, and then we meet the Johnny character, this is played by Charlie Schlatter, I couldn't help but notice he's very Marty McFly-esque. You know, we talked about it on our My Science Project episode, a movie that came out the same year as Back to the Future that I wonder if Touchstone was trying to tap into that or have their own version of Marty. But, like, he's playing guitar in a talent show just like the, the first, I want to say, five or ten minutes after you see when you first meet Elvis. I think the opening, the opening scene is, is Elvis on stage, right? And when you first meet the Johnny character, it's so similar to the first few minutes of when you meet Marty in Back to the Future. And what makes sense, I guess, because, uh, you know, Chris Columbus is a Spielberg disciple, having done, you know, Goonies and Gremlins, I believe he wrote those two. And I couldn't help but notice this film also has another single mother, like a lot of those Spielberg films, where you have Tuesday Weld is struggling to try to raise multiple children, you know, the teenager, and then he's got a kid sister. Um, But what I thought was interesting is, as the film begins, it's set in 1972, and so, of course, Elvis is like his Vegas... Uh, sequin jumpsuit version of himself. Um, but I never didn't occur to me that teenagers in 1972, they really don't like him. You know, and like you see a lot of, there's a lot of dialogue between Johnny and his friends and Johnny and his mother as well, where he keeps downplaying, you know, like he's not the king anymore. And I, and I hadn't really thought about that. Is there a time when a younger audience just didn't think he was cool? Without knowing the entire history of Elvis, you know, that I can rattle off the top of my head. The 68 comeback special, as it has been known, is now known. Mm-hmm. That was like his, because he had been out of the limelight for several years before that. So, yeah, you think the 60s, especially with the hippie counterculture uh, oh, yeah. audience, like they probably, Elvis was probably your parents' music. So, and as he's been, making changed, mo- he's been making movies as well, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you figure the music had kind of passed him by, the trends had changed, the music scene had changed and so i guess yeah looking at it now it's fair to say that teenagers probably weren't 
into Elvis. Because the Beatles would have been right there. Oh, sure. But, I mean, even they would have broken up by 1972. I mean, they made it a point to, to Johnny always mentions, like, Black Sabbath and stuff like that in the film. But, but yeah, so in the, in the course of how they talk about him not being the king, it sets up, puts the plot in motion, I guess, with Johnny and his friends. Or they're going to cheer up uh, Johnny's mother, who's going through a breakup, and they're going to kidnap the king. Guys, I need your help. Yeah? What's up, man? We're going to get my mom a date with Elvis Presley. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, right. What are you going to do, John? Kidnap him? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah. Come on, man. Wait, wait, wait. We're going to fly to uh, Memphis or Hollywood or wherever the hell he is? No, he's playing in Cleveland next Saturday. <laughs> the guy's got like 900 bodyguards. Wait, wait, we're going to go in with guns, right? <laughs> machine guns. No, no machine guns, buddy. No violence. It's going to be real safe. Well, if we're going to get arrested for kidnapping somebody, we should get arrested for kidnapping... Uh... McJagger. McJagger. We're not going to get arrested. Besides, I just got to... I just got to get close enough to talk to him. Maybe we can convince him to come back with us. I mean, he's a regular guy like us. Johnny, a regular guy like us doesn't have $50 million. His own private jet and a different girl in his bed every night. How many times do I got to tell you guys that I'm serious? Look, you guys know about my mom, man. She's, she, she's in a lot of trouble, man. And she loves Elvis Presley, you know, more than anything. And I figure, you know, if I can make her happy... But I do want to take a moment to just talk about David Keith for a moment. Like I said, I'm, I remember him from Firestarter, and I just I think he's really good. I mean, we'll we'll discuss later the idea of how different different ways that Elvis is depicted on screen. And I I don't know if you saw the Roger Ebert review where he complained that David Keith doesn't look anything like him. And I, we discovered later, like the movies that are being made now, the biopics. Okay, maybe not Freddie Mercury, mm-hmm. Remy Malik, but. They don't. They seem to. You don't have to look exactly like them, right? Right. That was one of the things that kind of struck me. You know, in, in longtime listeners of the show know I have a love hate relationship with Roger Ebert. Mm-hmm. And one movie I'll agree with him. Another movie I completely disagree. And when I saw his review and his comment about how, um, I knew I was going to mix these up. David Keith mm-hmm. uh, did not look like Elvis. I'm like that shouldn't matter because I. The first thought that came to me was Frost Nixon. And, oh, yeah. Um, Frank, Frank Langella, right? Yeah. Yes, he looks nothing like Nixon in no. that movie, but that doesn't take away from how good that movie was. I think David Keith did a decent job as Elvis. Now, maybe because this is coming a few years after the Kurt Russell version, or yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think basing your like or dislike on the movie just because the character doesn't look like the actor they're portraying you know, and I can also say I think at times in today's films, Christian Bale kind of goes a little over the top with oh. looking and ma- you know the mannerism. So sure. I think, like you said, this is a fable. It's not supposed to be a story about Elvis per se. It's- yeah. And I like that they kind of show you're seeing the, the the tail end of Elvis's career, which actually allows for more drama. Like I have never seen the Kurt Russell TV movie directed by John Carpenter, I believe. And I believe it focuses on his early years, you know. And there was a CBS miniseries, I want to say maybe 15 years ago, with Jonathan Rhys Myers that that got a lot of uh, acclaim. And same thing, it kind of focused on his early years. And so this idea that you're going to see him in the later years, I mean, I guess you don't really see him. You don't see him as much in Vegas, right? I think you see him. um, The the whole point of the movie is that he goes on tour and he's playing a show in Cleveland because it's set in Ohio. And so you see him in his, ho- his Ohio hotel room. And everything I, I'd ever heard about him during his Vegas years is that he was so lonely and isolated because he couldn't go out. If he needed anything, he would just have some of his Memphis Mafia or whatever go out and get it for him. And so I think the movie does a really good job of, of showing him in his room just like someone's like, oh, he's like, I'm hungry. And they're like, oh, what do you want? We'll go get it. And he's just like, no, no, I want to go and get it. Oh, no, you can't. And so I, I don't I mean... We look at this movie 30 years later and we say, oh, okay, yeah, I guess it's been done. But I'm thinking in 1988, had, had any filmmakers showed the loneliness of Elvis? Uh, that's a good question, too. And I, I want to jump back to the production real quick because I believe, if memory serves, 
This was produced by Deborah Hill, mm-hmm. who also was John Carpenter's producer. And I didn't look it up, but I wonder if she produced the Elvis movie that he did with Kurt Russell. Oh, like, yeah. And I don't know what effect that would have on the storytelling process, but it'd be an interesting little tidbit of sure. trivia. But yeah, like I said, I, I was really impressed by David Keith. There's this scene um, when the, the first time he comes home and reveals himself to Johnny's mother, Tuesday Well, and he's walking down the stairs and he's playing Love Me. I thought it was great. I, I got a little bit of a chill, you know, goose pimples or whatever watching that scene. And also, there's, a, there's another scene that happens a little bit later where all of a sudden word gets around that Elvis is at this motel and all the people start showing up, Johnny's classmates and they bring girls and then, and, and I, I think it would have been really easy for, for him to be like maybe overwhelmed. And then you're like, Oh man, we've, we've upset Elvis. But instead, like the way that they, Christopher Columbus's script and also David Key's performance, he's, he's not overwhelmed. Like it's, it could have been this really awkward moment, but it's handled very well. And it, I, I thought from that moment on, that's when the movie ten, kind of charmed me because you figure like he's got Stockholm syndrome, right? Where he's been kidnapped, but then, you know, all the, he he gets to see a close-up version of these fans rather than these throngs of audience members screaming at his name. Where he gets one by one people coming up and shaking his hand and taking a picture. And then isn't there like a polka man who comes in and they're playing like an Elvis song? And you just see the smile on his face. And I don't know. I I love that scene. I really like that moment. Um, but then at the same time, I also thought like if you look at the, some of the flaws. And I'm sure there are plenty. I know there was a lot of people who did not like this movie. As we mentioned, Ebert was not a fan at all. Um, it was very quiet. I thought there was like a, there was a lack of a musical score. And I'm thinking like it could have used more music. And I'm wondering was it a rights issue because there's still plenty of songs. I I don't know if you if you looked or not, but like half of the Elvis songs you hear in the movie are the original Elvis Presley versions, and the other half are ones that were re-recorded with David Keith on vocals. I mean, and maybe they just didn't want to have constantly Elvis song playing after Elvis song. It just it need, it needed some more of a score in the background, some kind of background music. Perhaps, and I think too, given what this story is trying to tell, and especially about the isolation of Elvis, taking him out of the concert venue where now he's on his own per se. You know, just with these people, with with these fans, he doesn't want to be Elvis the performer. He wants to be Elvis the person. So that could be used as a basis for not having a lot of Elvis songs because you're like no I don't want to sing I don't want to you know it's not like Bart Simpson like say the words you know (laughs) Um, it's just be Elvis Presley boy from Tupelo and then I'll I'll concede the floor to you on this one Chad because I know you had a problem as well but Johnny's haircut I mean my, my father always used to always say that one of his biggest complaints about movies that are set in the 60s is that they never get the hair right because he was high and tight crew cut all through his you know his high school years and I noticed that when I'm watching this Johnny's got kind of a mullet and all his friends it seemed to be more 80s haircut than 70s you said you found an issue with that too as well yes this movie if if I didn't know what it was if I'm flipping through the channels and I start watching you know halfway through the movie and I don't see all this it's just Charlie Schlater and his friends I have no I would assume this is an 80s film or a movie yeah. set in the 80s because other than one of his band members having long hair and having like a camouflage jacket, which you figure Vietnam going on at the time was probably the trend. Yeah, Charlie Schlater looks just like he did in 18 again, as you mentioned earlier. Like yeah. he's not, you know, they didn't put a wig on him. They didn't do anything to make him look like a kid who would have a high school band in 1972. Yeah, no, I don't remember anybody wearing bell bottoms. Mm. Right. I mean, I guess maybe some of the cars that they're driving, but yeah, that's it. That's it. And then I think one of the biggest issues I had with the film is that it seemed like there was a lot of missing scenes, like where there are deleted scenes because particular, um, I guess there's a girl, one of Johnny's classmates is a, a character named Beth. And it seemed like, like, okay, do they know each other? Like you see them at the talent show and then you see them again at the end and he has this crush on her and, you know, Elvis is trying to give her, give him tips and I was just like, okay, do we miss something? Were there, I feel like there should have been some more scenes between the two of them. You know, I mean, and did you recognize Dana Barron? That's um, Audrey from the first National Lampoon's Vacation movie, right? I, I know the name. Yeah. I recognize the name. I did not recognize her. And I, I just want to say that Elvis's tips for picking up, or, you know, being the suave guy, I should say. No, they're not going to work. No. They work for Elvis. It's like, you know, you and I, when we saw Prince several years ago at the, at the Forum, we always said, like, if you walked into a club and saw some guy doing a Prince impersonation, you'd be like, that is the biggest goofball, you know, the biggest oh, sure. crazy guy out there. But when Prince does it, you're like, that is the coolest, 
MFer out there, you sure. know. But that's Prince. Yeah. Same way. It's Elvis. Elvis had the hips. No one else can pull it off. And it also, like I said, it makes me cringe sometimes when I see movie characters behaving. And this is supposed to be it. Movie was filmed in the eighties. Takes place in the seventies. But there's a scene where Charlie is outside of her house. And he's, and he's going to try to go up and ask her out. And then Elvis finds him. And Elvis says, you know, go on and do it, son. And it's like, okay, why are you outside this woman's house? That should get the police called on you. <laughs> but um, And then you speak talking about Elvis's tips. That's where the movie takes a really weird turn for me towards the end of the second act. Where it's like, it's Elvis as stepfather. Where, he, you know, he... Tuesday, well, the mother character knows that he has to leave. He's going to have to go back and continue on with his tour. But they kind of just go on these dates, and they're doing yard work. And at one point, um, Johnny's little sister, she doesn't like to sleep with the lights out. And so Elvis comes in there to, to calm her down. And I just it seems, I don't know. And then, and then that leads into the, the most cringeworthy scene of the movie for me is when Elvis and Johnny's mother completely redecorate Johnny's bedroom and make it look like just over the top Elvis seventies. And like, why, why would you do that? And it's, I thought it was so artificial just to create that conflict at the end of the second act where Charlie Schleider can be like, why did I kidnap you? And you're, you're, you're not the King anymore. You know, that's one thing that also bothered me with this film is how much time elapses because yeah. like you said, Elvis is on tour. Where are his, and I think he does call the Colonel and tell him, you know, he's taking a few days off or I'm trying to remember um, how or oh, Elvis yeah, gets yeah. off tour for a few days, but yeah, like he seems to be there for at least a week almost. Doesn't like, it seem like it? Like, he, like they specifically said, "Oh, the, the next tour stops in Pittsburgh in a few days." Yeah. And yeah, you're right. I don't. And so yeah, I can. I mean, I like the scenes with the younger sister because I think yeah. they kind of humanized Elvis and kind of put him in. But the scenes with redecorating the hotel and everything, yeah, that's just that, yeah. that's movie conflict yeah and then like even the the tuesday world's boyfriend the one that like hit beat her up yeah. and then you see him later and he's like beating up charlie schlatter and like th- this character why would you beating up a kid is just mm-hmm. pure evil and then it it leads to that scene at the diner which just is very eye-rolling where where he has to he re- they, they show this scene from the earlier elvis movie um which i the, the title of that movie escapes me but but elvis gets into a fight at a diner and so they have to do the exact same scene, and then he does a whole dance number, and that's where it gets, okay, I know it's a fable, it's a fantasy, but it gets a little too silly. And that leads me to another issue that I had was there's this inconsistency where, like, when he's at the diner with Tuesday Weld, like, no one's bothering him. Hmm. Like, it's Elvis. Why is nobody bothering him? Yet, when he's at the hotel, all of a sudden, all these people show up, and he, he can't be left alone, and you're like, it's... I don't get it. Is he not famous or people recognize him or they don't? Like there was, it was kind of inconsistent throughout the film. I think it was partly that people didn't recognize him at first. And also again, he's been there for three months already. Maybe they're just over it. That's true. And he looks like David Keats. That's what it is. No one recognized him. He would be so proud. And the last thing I'll mention, which I thought would be a, something I could rely on you to provide more information is, why is Alice Cooper singled out in this movie? Like they, he, he's re, like when the first time he's referenced, I'm like, oh, okay, Alice Cooper. And then there, he's mentioned at least three or four times in the film as being like the anti Elvis, and it's the part of the music that the kids love. And Elvis is the old guy out of touch and just picks on Alice Cooper. Well, I would say it's because Alice Cooper is awesome and should be singled out in a lot more films, namely Prince of Darkness, which maybe there's a connection because that was a John Carpenter, John Carpenter. film, which came out in 1987. Seven, maybe, yeah. So if Deborah Hill had worked on that, maybe that had some connection. And I don't so know. I just pulled that out then there as I'm talking now. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking like, oh man, I wonder if Alice Cooper has actually seen this movie because he keeps getting his name dragged through the mud. And then in the closing credits, you see that both he and Shep Gordon are thanked. And this is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, Chad, so you can tell our listeners who is Shep Gordon? Okay. Well, before I get there, let me just... One thing that I wanted to uh, look into, because as you said, Alice Cooper's all over this. What had Alice Cooper done in 1972? Because I know, I believe his first album came out in 69. Okay. So in 72, he would have released the School's Out album in June. Okay. And this movie takes place, I believe, in the fall. And that song is featured on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. There's a scene. I almost used that as our opening music coming out was Alice Cooper's No Schoolhouse School House for Profits. Uh, <laughs> School's Out, which is the only hit off of that album. It's a concept album basically about leaving school and, and 
what goes on after you're, you're out of school. And something that I found out in the research is that a lot of the songs on that album have never even been played live until like the most recent Alice Cooper tour. He's doing a couple of songs, but okay. in 1971, he released Love It to Death, the album which featured 18, Ballad of Dwight Fry, and Killer. Oh, and then the Killer album. So Love It to Death came out early 71. Killer came out late 71, which featured the songs Under My Wheels, which he's covered with Guns N' Roses for the Decline of Western Civilization soundtrack, Be My Lover, and Desperado, a song about Jim Morrison. Um, and then 1973 would have been the Billion Dollar Babies. Uh, huge. I love that album. Yes. Huge jump. So Alice Cooper at this time would have been um, everything that your parents told you to stay away from. Sure. And as for who Shep Gordon is, yeah. um, I just watched the night prior to recording this, watched an interview with Alice and Shep. And Shep was a, uh, how did they say it? A... I can't remember their exact words, but I believe it's something like he was a in the medicine field and was a delivery person and had clients sort of that included Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison. Uh-huh. Pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals. There you go. Yes, okay. he was a pharmaceutical uh, rep. And he met Alice. They had just gotten signed or were about to get signed by Frank Zappa. They asked if Shep wanted to be their manager. Shep, thinking no one was going to want to listen to these people, said this will be the easiest job ever. Yes, I will manage you. To this day, he is Alice Cooper's manager. They have never signed a contract. Um, they've just worked on a handshake handshake deal. And Alice has said, you know, if I make money, Shep makes money. So it works out for best. And there is a video I'll recommend on YouTube. It's um, from when Shep's biography came out. It's a TED, not a TED talk. It's an L.A. talk with Shep and Alice. And they talk about some of the promotional stuff that they did in the early days that oh, nice. shows why Shep is the great manager that he is um there is a documentary called supermensch which is a jewish term mm-hmm. which is all about uh, alice and alice in the in this interview says you know you have a buddhist jew and a baptist minister's son and it's just a perfect combination so mm. yeah alice cooper is uh you know obviously huge superstar rock and roll hall of fame he's a national uh, treasure national I, treasure i really do I, i'm a big fan i i will single out here that on his Dragon Town LP, which came out early 2000s, I believe, there's a song called Disgraceland, which is all about Elvis and dying on the toilet. <laughs> well, the most amusing part about this whole thing when I was watching the movie is I remember hearing Alice tell the story of meeting Elvis, and supposedly it happened before, so it happened in either 70 or 71, before the events of this movie. And rather than me tell it, I'll just have Alice tell you about the meeting. So 1971, Las Vegas, I get an invitation to meet Elvis Presley at the Hilton. And in the elevator is Liza Minnelli, Chubby Checker, and Linda Lovelace. So that's the four people that's going to go out and meet Elvis that night. You know, this is when Elvis was Elvis. Wasn't fat Elvis, he was rock Elvis. He comes walking in and he goes, hey man, you're the cat with a snake, ain't you? I went, yeah. He says, that's cool, man. I think that's really cool. He said, hey, I want to show you something. So I go into the kitchen. He opens up a drawer. Hands me a Smith & Wesson 38, snub-nosed 38. He said, I'm going to show you how to take this gun out of somebody's hand. Now, I'm standing there with a snub-nosed 38 on him. And a little angel, little devil on my shoulder. The little devil says, shoot him. I go, no, I can't shoot him. The little angel says, wound him. Just wound him. It'll be the best story ever. You shot Elvis Presley. By the time I could make up my mind, the gun was on the ground. I was on the floor. His boot was in my throat, and I'm going, that's good, Elvis. Can I get up now? But I kept thinking, what happens when the Memphis Mafia walks in and I'm standing there with a loaded 38 on Elvis Presley? One of us is going to get shot. <laughs> and I said, might as well shoot him. But I didn't. Okay, so plain and simple, Chad Smart, where do you come down on this movie on a scale of 1 to 10? Well, before I give my answer, I want to read a little bit more from Roger Ebert's uh, printed review. And he said, here it is, the goofiest movie of the year, a movie so bad in so many different and enduring ways that... I'm damned if I didn't feel genuine affection for it. Well, it's funny because I saw the clip where he he and Siskel used to do their worst movies of the yeah. year list, and Heartbreak Hotel is on there, along with Cocktail. They had two touchstone mm-hmm. movies on there, yeah. Well, he does give the movie one star, but yeah. <laughs> I will give it, I would say, probably a six. Because I, I enjoyed the film. Like you said, there are flaws. There are several issues with the film, but I 
I, I, this was, again, why we do the podcast. Yeah. I had not seen this film, and it was a pleasant surprise. Were you familiar with it at all, or no? I know the cover art. I yeah. know the title. But the cover of Elvis sort of passed out in the back of the, of the convertible being yeah. driven to some random town. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones that I don't remember why I saw it. It was just the movie theater I referenced before was... It was one of those one-screen theaters on an Air Force base, and we would just go see whatever was playing, and we thought it sounded amusing, and I think I'd heard Elvis's music in my house, but um, I, too, had it as a, as a six. I, I thought it was a, it's a whimsical fantasy, and it has charm and wonder, but it's somewhat kind of undone by a lot of plot contrivances. And then I always like to curious, curious to see if you can do like a sequel or a remake, and I don't know. I was going to ask you, Chad. Could you remake this film with a different pop star from a different generation? Because I feel like what makes this movie so charming and original is the fact that Elvis is so iconic and that makes the film unique. Like, you, I don't know, could you have done it with, like, Michael Jackson or Madonna in the 80s or like, would it be Lady Gaga now? Like, could you, I don't know if you could tell the story. It has to be Elvis, right? I mean, Michael Jackson, if you had made this movie before and. 1995 may have worked, but yeah. I think he would be the only one because he's the king of pop. Uh, yeah, Maybe. I don't think it would work with Madonna or Lady Gaga or you know Justin Beyond, Bieber. Beyonce. Yeah. I mean, well, could you do it with Beyonce now? Maybe. I mean, but I think the Beehive would come out and and find whoever kidnapped her. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to be set in an era without smartphones. And the internet, right? So it'd have to be the, right at the beginning. So maybe in the 80s, yeah, could you do it with uh, Prince or, you know, or maybe, like you said, maybe Madonna? Yeah. I don't know. But it, they, weren't, they wouldn't have been big enough. They would have only been around for a few years. You would have needed somebody who had had a career from the 60s or 70s. And how many of them were, as we discussed recently on an episode, like how many of them were still popular? We talk about mm-hmm. Steve Winwood and we talk about Higher Love. Who was still popular, huge in the 80s that came out in the 60s and 70s? Yeah, I guess if you did it after 1989... You could be Donny Osmond. <laughs> After Soldier of Love, cracked the top ten. Then no one would come looking for him. Um, okay, from a trivia standpoint, not a whole lot on this movie. I did see that it was filmed on location in Austin, Texas. This, of course, was the second movie from 1988 that touched on release that was filmed in Austin after the DOA, the Dennis Quaid thriller. Um, I, 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 I noticed this immediately when I saw the film, but the motel where Tuesday Weld works is called Flaming Star, which is named after one of Elvis's movies. And then um, I was curious about, like, we were talking about the rights issues for the songs and how did they get his likeness? Well, right there in the, right there in the end credits, it says, quote, the cooperation of the estate of Elvis Presley and Elvis Presley Enterprises Incorporated is greatly appreciated, end quote. And there's like an executive consultant listed in the credits for working on behalf of Elvis Presley Enterprises. So, I wonder, would Priscilla still have been controlling or had any say in Elvis at that time? I wonder. Yeah, yeah maybe. Because I know Lisa Marie would probably have been too young. Although she would have yeah. been 18. Maybe she could have signed off. But yeah. Yeah. The only thing I have uh, real quick is the financing on this film. I don't know if you saw this. Okay. Oh, the thing about uh, it was – yeah, go ahead. Uh, it was set uh, – financing was set up by a organization that – was trying to help redevelop Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And two of the first three movies, it was all about bringing business back to LA, keeping film work in LA. Two out of the th- first three films, including Heartbreak Hotel, shot elsewhere. Yeah. Only the post-production was done in Los Angeles. Yeah, so, that's funny. That's, Anything they can to get, to get financing. I know how that works, right? The last bit of trivia I had, which I found on my own, was in, uh, in 2018, David Keith would go on to star in a Hallmark Christmas film called Christmas at Graceland. And then you know those Hallmark Christmas movies, if it was even moderately successful, it gets a sequel. So in 2019, there was another movie called Wedding at Graceland. Now, I don't think, it doesn't play Elvis, but it's just, it seems like it's set in and around uh, Memphis. Um, the soundtrack for the film, well, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, you have a lot of Elvis music, but I was wondering, personally, was it a missed opportunity to maybe create some new songs? I don't know if it didn't have to be an Elvis song. Would it have been too difficult to have uh, Elvis himself singing a song that wasn't an Elvis song, and then you could put it on the soundtrack and maybe try to sell some records? I don't know. Uh, but for the title song itself, I, I did look up Heartbreak Hotel. Uh, that was his first single for RCA Records. It was released in January of 1956, and it topped the Billboard charts for seven weeks. The country and western charts for 17 weeks, and it reached number three on the R&B charts. This song was in the top five of the country western R&B and Billboard Hot 100 chart at the same time, which is, just seems unprecedented. And it was also his very first gold record. 
Speaking of charts, so we'll always look to, we'll have to look at the box office performance. Uh, as we said, it opened at the end of September. It opened at number two with with only two point oh six million dollars. The first place film that weekend was Gorillas in the Mist. The the other films that opened against it were Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and the limited releases of Punchline and Bird, the uh, Clint Eastwood movie about Charlie Parker. Uh, at the same time, Cocktail was number eight on the charts. It was in its 10th week of release. And Who Framed Roger Rabbit was ninth, which was in its 15th week of release. And in the second week, Heartbreak Hotel slips to number 12, which was Columbus Day weekend. And that was um, Punchline Goes Wide and Alien Nation topped the box office. It was brand new. And this is where I think Touchstone Marketing failed because it's Columbus weekend. They should have been promoting the heck out of a Chris Columbus film. That should have been number one that weekend. Missed missed their mark. Uh, But yeah, it quietly leaves theaters, and it only makes $5.5 million on a $13 million budget. Awards consideration, I was really surprised by this, but it actually gets a nomination for the Best Family Motion Picture Comedy at the 1989 Youth in Film Awards. I don't know that one. I think it said it's it's an award that's designed for, for actors who are under the age of 18. And I believe the kid's sister, played by Angela Gothels, she gets a nomination as well. But I just had a curiosity. I wanted to look up the five nominees for the 1989 Youth in Film Award for Best Family Motion Picture Comedy. In addition to Heartbreak Hotel, it was also had Three Men and a Baby, which came out almost a year before, so I don't know when their criteria would have been. Overboard, Big, and the winner for the Best Family Motion Picture Comedy, Batteries Not Included. Hmm. Who knew? Uh, I always like to look at connections with some of my favorite franchises. First up would be James Bond. Not really much of a connection, but I know that you used to always talk about the fact that Alice Cooper was a big fan and tried to write the theme song for The Man with the Golden Gun. Not only did he try... He succeeded, but they just didn't use they the song that they wrote. Because <laughs> I believe it's on the Billion Dollar Babies album. There's a song called Man with the Golden Gun. Okay. Okay, maybe I'm wrong on which album it is, but he has a song called Man with the Golden Gun, which is like, hey, if we write the song, they've got to use it. <laughs> and they did not. <laughs> not. And also on his uh, 86 album, Constrictor, um, there's a song called The Great American Success Story, which is all about the Rodney Danger film, Back to School. Which I don't think is reused in the movie, but it oh, really? follows the plot of the movie almost intact. So. Oh yeah, and that's and then what, there's a there is a song that I remember. I think it's on Billion Dollar Babies. It's Unfinished Sweet, mm-hmm. and that and it has the James Bond theme music in it as well. But I mean, we could talk about Alice Cooper for a long time. Um, I always like to look at it. There's a connection with Alfred Hitchcock and his films, and I did see that Tuesday Weld herself has an uncredited cameo in Hitchcock's 1956 film The Wrong Man. So I'm really surprised to, to see actors from Touchstone movies who were also acted for Alfred Hitchcock. And Tuesday Weld is not the only one we're going to discuss on this episode. And real quick, it's the Muscle of Love album from Alice Cooper that has Man with the Golden Gun. All right. Well, like you said, we can sit here. I could talk to you about Alice Cooper all day. Again, I will mention his song Disgraceland, which he even does a little Elvis impersonation during the song. But now, moving from Disgraceland to... Disgraced Woman, I guess you could say. We have Diane Keaton and a young Liam Neeson in The Good Mother. Touchstone Pictures presents Diane Keaton in the movie Newsweek magazine calls undeniably powerful, The Good Mother. What do you think, Captain Brian, that he did something wrong? Sneak Preview says Diane Keaton is amazing. Finest performance by any actress this year. Don't you think I'm taking a rap too? Huh? How about for the rest of my life? And Us Magazine raves Diane Keaton's courageous fight makes a great movie. The Good Mother. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Yes, it was released on November 4th, 1988, The Good Mother, directed by Leonard Nimoy, who was coming off of the smash hit 1987 film Three Men and a Baby. And as we mentioned on that episode, his only other directorial credits were Star Trek 3 and 4 that he made for Paramount before he came over to Touchstone. Uh, The Good Mother is based on a novel by Sue Miller. She was a single mother herself and was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where this book and movie has been set. Uh, this was her first novel. It was published in 1986. I, th- I thought it was interesting. Disney bought the rights to the book before it was even published. Like, they knew about the controversial subject matter, maybe? No, it was called The Good Mother. They're like, that movie, that book is so good, it's going to make a good movie. Mm. And they called it Good Burger. 
<laughs> Welcome to Good Mother, home of the Good Mother. Um, I did see that the book is more racy, supposedly. It, it delves a little deeper into Diane Keaton's character, her family. and But it was a New York Times bestseller. Um, Sue Miller herself, uh, she also had another short story collection called Inventing the Abbots that was adapted into a movie in 1997. Chad, you said you watched that one? I did. I watched it to kind of counterbalance to see what if there were similar themes. And I, you've not seen no. good. Uh, I remember... You know, when we were in college, the TV station worked out would show the film, but I'd never seen it. And I will, uh, as a bonus recommendation here on the show, I would say check this movie out. I really enjoyed it's uh, Liv Tyler, Jennifer Connelly, Joaquin Phoenix, Billy Crudup. It was, a, I, I found it a, it's slow, so just prepare yourself, take a nap before watching it. But I, uh, I, I really enjoyed the film much more than I expected to. Oh, good. Yeah, okay. And then the only other thing I have on Sue Miller is that in the year 2000, her novel, While I Was Gone, was chosen for Oprah's Book Club. So, um, as far as the screenplay, the adaptation was done by Michael Bortman, and who he had, he had written and directed TV movies for about the previous 10 years. This was his first theatrical release. His previous writing credit before the film was a 1984 TV movie called Single Bars, Single Women, which starred Tony Danza and Paul Michael Glazer. The funny part about some of these touchstone things... Oh, but I need to look up that movie immediately. Yeah, when we when I'm doing research on these to figure out what the talent had done beforehand, I come across so many TV movies. It just seemed like back in the day when you had four networks, right? And the cable was still kind of up and going. Yeah, because you know every channel, I think, had their day of the week movie. Like their CBS Tuesday night movie, the NBC Sunday night movie. So yeah. they... It's needs cr- content. Yeah, it's great. It's just a more prolific era, I guess. Uh, as we mentioned already, we, Diane Keaton is cast. She plays the character of Anna in the film. She'd been acting, of course, since the early 1970s. She'd done the Godfather films. She'd done all of the collaborations with Woody Allen on Sleeper and Annie Hall in Manhattan. And her most previous film before Good Mother was uh, 1987, the movie Baby Boom, which garnered her a Golden Globe nomination. That's a very fun movie as well. I mean, it, it's all, it's very it's very dated. It's it's working women in the 80s, but it's it's really fun. Uh, and, of course, we had Liam Neeson, who plays the character of Leo. He was relatively unknown in America. He'd done a lot of British film, television, and stage work beginning in the late 1970s. But then his film roles get a little bigger in the 1980s. And I want to... Ready for this? This, are, this is their list of films that he did, the big movies he did in the 1980s. And the touchstone connections, it's crazy. I couldn't help but notice all of these connections. Okay, so in 1981, he's in the film Excalibur, the John Borman film, which he co-stars with Gabriel Byrne from Hello Again. In 1984... He's in The Bounty, which was directed by Roger Donaldson, who also directed Cocktail. In 1986, he's in the film The Mission, which he co-stars with Aidan Quinn from Stakeout. In 1987, he does two movies. One is called A Prayer for the Dying, co-starring Bob Hoskins from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and also A Suspect, co-starring Dennis Quaid from DOA. In 1988, he stars in four movies. The Good Mother is one. He's in the Deadpool, the Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry movie. No touchstone stars in that film that I could find. Well, but it does have Jim Carrey and Guns N' Roses. Jim Carrey, yes. Um, and, of course, I, I know, Chad, you love this movie. He's in Satisfaction with Justine Bateman, which stars future touchstone star Julia Roberts. She does Pretty Woman two years later. And the other movie he did in 1988, which is a movie I found. It's streaming on Prime Video, and I'm trying to convince my wife to watch it. It's a movie called High Spirits. And I remember oh. that TV uh, being on TV a lot when I was a kid on Showtime. I think it's one of the first movies that my parents like recorded on VHS. But it stars Peter O'Toole, but it also has Daryl Hannah from Splash and the Goot, Steve Gutenberg from Three Men and a Baby. So, so many connections with uh, Liam Neeson. Now, now, wait a minute. Are you saying, though, that nobody in Crawl went on to do a touchstone film? I looked. I, I, know, I know how much you, you wanted to talk, discuss mm. Krull, which is 1983. I remember that movie when I was a kid. And I, I mean, I, I'm curious to see it now. My wife does like those fantasy yeah. movies. And so, but... Uh, yeah, I don't think I've seen it probably since 1984 or five. All I remember is a little, like, The boomerang thing, thing yeah. right? With the boomerang, with the blades on it? Yeah. Uh, okay. It, so, as far as the movie itself, um, I think we're... You know, the first thought I had was that it just it feels like a novel, and I don't mean that necessarily as a bad thing, but it kind of it has like it has a prologue, and it kind of you know you see what that character was like when she was younger, and then it flashes forward to them in the present day, and of course, and then it has an epilogue at the end, and I you know you try to figure out what the connection is, but it just it seems like this book was probably a lot longer, like it was a lengthy source material, and and unfortunately that means that you end up having the film gets divided into two parts. Because you, you just have all these characters that they're trying to squeeze in from this lengthy novel, 
and try to squeeze it into essentially like less than two hour runtime. And what you end up with is you end up with the first half of the movie, which is kind of like a romantic comedy. And then the second half of the movie becomes like this really serious, heavy family drama. Um, Diane Keaton herself, I, I think she's wonderful. I mean, she's, she's bubbly as ever. She's, you know, that uptight character that she plays a lot. And she, I think she does a good job playing this sexually repressed divorcee we'll call it. Um, there's a, there's some really funny scenes where she, you know, she works in a lab and she has a coworker named Alex who's always wearing his headphones and so she has these one-sided conversations where he's just completely oblivious to her and it kind of sets up that, it, it, felt, sorry, it felt more like a romantic comedy. It's the kind of scenes you would have seen in Baby Boom rather than in Good Mother yeah. and then when you have this sort of meet cute with Liam Neeson in the laundromat, it's just, it's one of those things that I always complain, it only works in the movies. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one of those, I, I feel like romantic comedies can be more damaging because this, some of the dialogue and he literally just comes out and says, Oh, you're very pretty. And she's just, Oh, kind of, well, I mean, she's rejects him at first, but you can tell she's still sort of thinking about him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but then of course it leads to these, like I said, romantic comedy hijinks. And then she has like the bestie girlfriend that she relies on, which is who's played by Katie Seagal in a young role. And she has to kind of egg her on to want to pursue the guy. Anna, you are so bourgeois. The minute that you find out he has a profession, you're interested. No, that is not it at all, Ursula. It's just that it's it's safe. It means that he's he's not some kind of, uh, a, you know, screwball or something. No, he's adorable. Call him up. No, I can't, Ursula. Why not? I can't. I can't. Maybe I'll see him uh, in the laundromat. Oh, Anna. Oh. Anna. Do you know how few guys are out there that aren't either gay or married even like women enough to try to pick them up in a laundromat. I would have followed this guy home on my knees. Oh, well, I mean, that's you, Ursula. And of course, in keeping with the romantic comedy tropes, you have the, the dashing young man who has the, the artist's space, you know, when she brings her home. And, you know, it looks exactly like the apartment that Elizabeth Shue has at the end of Cocktail. You only, I feel like you only see that in the movies. The vaulted ceilings and all the half-done artwork that's supposed to impress the person when they come over. But what, it, what was kind of funny is that when you do see them finally make love, did you notice that, that it looks like the film is sped up, kind of like Leonard Nimoy did in the opening credits of Three Men and a Baby. I could, I mean, it just seems like it was kind of a little bit more rapid. You don't think Liam Neeson's just that viral? <laughs> I guess uh, not viral. 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 <laughs> Sorry, times we're living in. Viral. Um, no, but I did notice uh, you mentioned earlier that Nimoy did direct this, and uh, real quick, they shot this movie takes place in Massachusetts, yeah. so they did a lot of exterior shooting in Boston before moving to sound stages in Toronto. And I don't know if you noticed, but in Diane Keaton's apartment, there's a stand-up of Ted Danson. In the window. In the window. Is Very it, odd. Is it, is it a ghost? <laughs> well, what's funny was you talk about the way it was. it's set in Boston, but what's they don't really mention it by name, but yet there's so many exterior shots. And I immediately recognized, I think when they're in like Harvard Square, Chad, you and I were just there a couple of years ago. And, and I was like, oh, that, oh yeah, that looks vaguely familiar. Yeah, they... Okay. Everywhere, everywhere they go, it's it's not mentioned, but you you're like, oh, this must be the Cambridge area in Harvard. Yeah, what? Quincy Market, Union Oyster House, Faneuil Hall. Faneuil Hall. We, yeah, we, 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 yeah. Chad, Chad and I had a I had a lobster roll at Faneuil Hall. Yes. So I just found it that amusing. Uh, the, I wanted to throw my little Leonard Nimoy Three Men and a Baby uh, connection, which I believe actually got cut out of the episode that we did. We cut out the Ted Dancing Ghost because it's so popular, urban legend. Oh well. Um, but yeah, I want to jump back real quick at the beginning of this film. This movie took a while, took a while to get into mm-hmm. and the opening probably 15 minutes. I just, I'm sitting here going like, what is the point of this film? Like there's this whole backstory with Diane Keaton's aunt yeah. that, you know, as she's a kid and the aunt is only a few years older because the grandparents had kids staggered out. And I, I found that part of the movie just to be very, unnecessary and that's where had i had more time and actually an interest in it i probably would have read the book mm-hmm. you know kind of like i did with who framed roger rabbit and stuff like, to get a more concise uh, or a better understanding of what story sue miller originally told the impression i get and i read a really scathing review of the film in the la times was that the prologue sets up diane keaton's aunt as this sort of sexually adventurous young woman 
who is punished for it. And she ends up, no spoilers, she, she drowns in the film and, and her family shuns her for being so open about her sexuality. And the whole point of the good mother as the, the adult Diane Keaton is that she's, she's, just because she's a single mother doesn't mean she should be able to date or uh, fall for mm-hmm. a, a dashing man at a laundromat, I guess. I can see that because when we first meet Diane Keaton, she's divorced, but she's, even when she meets Liam Neeson, she talks about how she's never really been in love or been, mm-hmm. you know, been that adventurous, I guess, in the realms of romance. Yeah. Um, I just want to point out, uh, I believe, I can't think of the actor's name, but one of her uncles in the movie is uh, from Murphy Brown. Yeah, Charles Shaughnessy. You know? uh, no, Charles Shaughnessy is from The Nanny. That's right. Okay. Charles Kimbrough. Kimbrough. And that's without IMDb, folks. I just pulled that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that cracked me up because he's just got that voice. It's very identifiable. He played Jim, the anchor yeah. on Murphy Brown. Oh, he was so good uh, on that okay. show. But uh, yeah, and then of course, like I said, the second half is where you get all the drama. And I just want to ask you, Chad, because I can't figure out the dynamics of her ex-husband. Like he shows up, and he's at one point he's like living in the he's like living in the house, and he's like babysitting. But mm-hmm. then they've taken steps to to point out that he's actually works and lives in Washington D.C. with his new wife, and this is in Boston. I'm like, why is he there? All the time. I mean, I, I, mean again, I don't know how custody works. And then, of course, you know, he takes the daughter to, back to D.C. to visit, and that's where everything goes wrong. And then well, that's where I, I put it in my notes. I put drama, movie, <laughs> acting. It kind of reminds me of the John Lovitz character from SNL because all of a sudden it gets really, really heavy-handed. There's this, there's this scene where Diane Keaton and Liam Neeson are on a date, and she just goes off on this rant about why can't I be, you know, a good mother and and want my, want this and want that, and he's just like totally blindsided mm-hmm. by it. And you're like, okay, now we're gonna get we've we've gotten they've hooked up, they've made love finally, and now you have to get to the drama part of the film. Okay, well, jumping back to the ex-husband. So, going back to my good friend Roger Ebert's review. He says, if you understand how the ex-husband is handled in this movie, you can begin to understand why the movie goes so wrong. He is used only as an evil, vindictive plot device. Yeah. And I agree with that. That's He shows up, you know, at first, when you first meet him, they have what seems to be an amicable divorce, and they're sharing joint custody. And then, when he comes... One day she just comes home and he's like, I'm taking the kid and you can ask Liam Neeson why. Yeah. And she's like, what What are you talking about? And so that's where much like with um, big business, you know, from previous episode, this now falls into lost conversation t- territory where there's yes. no real conversation. It's drama for the sake of drama. Like you said, we have to show our acting chops. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, we bring in Jason Robards, who is fantastic. Well, of course. Yeah. But like, and I, it's funny you mentioned that because I, when I was watching the Siskel and Ebert worst of 1988 to see what they had to say about Heartbreak Hotel, I also watched their review of Good Mother and Roger Ebert pointed out something interesting, which I hadn't thought about is the two most important scenes from the book you don't see on screen. And that is, of course, Diane Keaton's daughter, and seeing Liam Neeson naked and then Diane Keaton's daughter telling the ex-husband about it. And so you, you only hear about it secondhand and then we're supposed to be drawn into the drama of it. And that's where, real quick, I just want to touch on, maybe wrong words to use, but I want to mention that I didn't know what this movie was about. Yeah. I didn't read the synopsis. I just put it in the DVD player for those wanting to watch at home. It is available on DVD. We got it from the library. But... I was just going with it to see where it went. There were two scenes that really made me feel uncomfortable. One of them is after um, Dan Keaton meets Liam Neeson's character for the first couple times, he calls her. And the daughter, who's four years old in the movie, is like, she answers the phone and she's there topless with like a necklace on. And I just. That just felt really weird to be in that sure. contest. And then there's a scene where Diane Keaton and the girl are in the bathtub. And you don't see anything. You know, the camera is low enough. But then the camera moves around and Liam Neeson is sitting there reading them a book. And that just to me, like, I can understand, okay, if Diane Keaton, one thing. But with the kid in there, it just seemed really icky. Yeah, no, I, I'm the same way. It was a little uncomfortable. And I'm wondering if that's one of the things that maybe Leonard Nemo was drawn to it. Because mm-hmm. I know, I mean, I think years later he did his photography books where he dealt with, like, um, naked bodies mm-hmm. and, and the different ways you can view beauty based on, like, skinny or yeah. fat or tall or short. And so, I mean, I think that's kind of the whole point of the movie. And I think it's 
your opinion of the movie is how your opinion on sexuality and morality mm-hmm. is, I guess. Yes. And I already told you ahead of time, I don't want to get it, turn their podcast into a morality discussion. No. I would encourage people, if you want to watch it, watch it. I, I thought it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's kind of like country where I felt like I, I, I'm glad I saw it to a degree, but I don't necessarily want to see it again. Yeah, And getting to the, I guess, the crux of the movie is earlier, before Liam Neeson shows up, we see Diane Keaton reading a book to her daughter in bed and it's all about sexuality and mm-hmm. you know she's talking anatomy and it's done in a tasteful i guess clinical way yeah and so that's where the whole drama comes when liam neeson is explaining what ha- what has happened and he's like i thought she would be okay with this but again the way the details are set up i don't think it's okay it's like very yeah. like we're but again there's no conversation to be like this is what happened this is why it happened here's how we're, you know i wasn't aware or whatever going forward but it it just seemed like drama created for the sake of telling a story yeah and i think the best part of the drama ends up being the courtroom scenes at the end and like you talked about uh jason robarts he is the best part of the movie i think he was absolutely fantastic and his work as diane keaton's lawyer were some of my favorite moments from the movie were you aware that uh Molly had a book which explained sex to her? No. You were not aware of that? No. Uh, Were you aware that the daycare center had done a project on anatomy, body parts, with the kids, which included sexual parts? No. Well, now that you have been made aware, Mr. Dunlap, uh, doesn't it seem clear that uh, Molly's preoccupation with sexuality, with your body, or stepmother's, might have a great deal to do with learning experiences rather than anything else. No. No what? No, it doesn't seem clear to me. And with the courtroom scenes, like I said, I think the credit goes to the film for showing a lot of the intricacies of family law, including like court strategies. Like the lawyer has to figure out... You know, do you want to save your relationship or do you want to save your custody with your daughter? And I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's probably been other. I mean, I've never seen Kramer versus Kramer. And I know there's a lot of movies that might touch on it. But this is one of the first times I'd really seen it. Yeah. Kramer versus Kramer doesn't, from my memory, doesn't actually touch into like lawyer. It's just uh, Meryl Streep leaves and then Dustin Hoffman is raising the kid. Uh, Unlike Marriage Story, which came out this year, which does deal with. The over-the-topness of or divorce what, lawyers. What was the one where, where is it Drew Barrymore divorces Irreco- her parents? Irreconcilable differences. Right. That's a, that's a, I remember that movie. from I'm trying to think of movies from the 80s. I remember as a kid that involved like family court room drama. But And then, as I mentioned, like another thing I'll give credit to the movie is it, it kind of has an open ending, so it allows the viewers to decide how they feel and where the characters are going to go next. You know, like... We always talk about like sequels or remakes. Like I don't really know what what kind of drama you could bring about because the characters are all, are all in a really different spot by the time the movie's over. I don't know. And it, it I don't know, at the end of the day, it does feel a little bit like a kind of like a lifetime movie, although it's a little bit more graphic. You know, we talk about touch don't touch. The movie is R rated for some sort of extreme sexual situations, and I guess there's a little bit of foul language. But I, I hate to just go right down the middle, but on a scale of one to ten, I just give it a solid five. Because it was compelling, but it's also kind of slow at parts. And, and the, the acting is very melodramatic and over the top. What did you think, Chad? Yeah, I would probably go with a four. Just same thing. It's not it's not good and it's not bad. It's just kind of there. And you mentioned Country earlier. I think it's a very similar type film. I will end my comment with quoting Ebert. Once again for this show, he's, he's getting a lot of, of time on this one. He says, uh, The Good Mother was made with the best of intentions and the worst of screenplays. Yeah, I wonder how much in, how much input the novelist Sue Miller had on the adaptation. Mm-hmm. One only knows. Um, from a trivia standpoint, there's really not anything on this. The only thing I saw was on IMDb, it mentions that Matt Damon has an uncredited cameo in the film, and it's his film debut. But then IMDb also goes on to say that it's unconfirmed. Mm-hmm. And I did a bunch of searching, could not find anything. I kind of went, went back and watched some of the crowd scenes. I didn't see it. I think when I gave you the DVD to watch it, I asked you to look. Did you see him? I mean, I, I did not. And uh, I ran in real quick, just trivia, because uh, I don't think we mentioned it earlier in the directing. Uh, Robert Redford and Barbara Streisand were rumored to direct okay. beforehand, but uh, I think it would have been an interesting directorial choice. 
I mean, I guess she had Barbara Darby had done Yentl, and Redford had probably done some some movie. I can't make ordinary me. people at the time. Oh, okay, yeah. There you oh, go. Good pull. Um, uh, we'll look at the soundtrack. There's no there's no official soundtrack release, but when I'm watching the movie, I did notice there was one song that stuck out, and it's called "Just Like You Said It Would Be." which is from Sinead O'Connor. And as soon as I'm watching it, I recognize that voice. I'm not a big Sinead O'Connor fan, but I did immediately recognize her voice. I looked it up. Mm -hmm. It was from her 1987 debut album, which is called The Lion and the Cobra. And what I was wondering was, like we talked about, Chad and I on our other podcast, we had Wonder Why, we talked about the Proclaimers and I'm going to be 500 miles or I'm going to, I would walk 500 miles. And the... The story goes that Mary Stuart Masterson, I believe, was a fan of the Proclaimers, and so when she was doing Benny in June, she had it on in the background, and the filmmakers got wind of it, and they decided to put it in the movie. And I'm wondering, Shannon O'Connor was only doing like she's only big on like college rock radio. Now, granted, this is movie set around Harvard, but I was wondering, Liam Neeson being Irish, is there some sort of connection where maybe he was a fan and then mentioned it to Leonard Nimoy or something? They got that song on the soundtrack. I don't know. I just see in your notes here that you have the title typed out i'm guessing the way it is pronounced and my question is because the u is a u and the b is a b did prince have anything to do with this song uh, it's it's funny because as soon as i noticed that i'm like wait a minute i double checked it that's the way that it was spelled the u and just like you the letter u said it would be the letter b that's how Sinead o'connor has it on that album and because for those of you who may not be aware Sinead's biggest hit Nothing compares. compares to you was written by Prince. And spelled out like that yep. by Prince. I did go back and listen to the, the Lion and the Cobra album the other day. It's worth listening to, if anything, just because of the song Mandinka, which is a great song. I think that was one of her first hits. But, oh, let's look at the box office. Or, oh, maybe we shouldn't. Um, the movie opened in sixth place and only made $1.8 million. It's opening weekend. This is November, so we're getting close to the holidays, I guess. The only other movies that opened that weekend all finished first, second, and third at the box office. First was They Live. Oh, John Carpenter again. They love that one. And with Keith, da- Keith David. Wait, Keith David, not David Keith. Not so, David Keith. <laughs> yeah, Deborah Hill produced both those movies in one year. Uh, the second place film was the concert movie U2 Rattle and Hum. And the third place film was Everybody's All American. Those were the three movies that opened opposite The Good Mother. And in second week, it falls all the way to number 11, and then it just disappears from theaters. So it only grosses $4.76 million on a budget of $14 million. And I did do some researching to see, like, how bad was this compared to other Touchstone movies? There were only three Touchstone pictures in the entire decade of the 1980s that did not gross at least $5 million at the box office. Offbeat, which made just a hair more than Good Mother. And the other one is... My science project. I'm horrified to learn that one of my favorite movies that Touchstone put out was the lowest grossing movie they had in the 1980s. It would be, I I looked up, I think in 1990, Touchstone has a movie that only grosses like $1 million at the box office. So what movie is that? You have to just keep tuning in to find out. Uh, Awards consideration, none. Not Not even worth looking at. But... As I mentioned with Heartbreak Hotel. Not even from like the Irish film festivals? I, or, I, yeah. I mean, maybe I missed something. I, or like a young actor award mm-hmm. for the girl that plays Diane Keaton's daughter. I got nothing. But lastly, I always like to look at, again, talk about the James Bond connection and Alfred Hitchcock connections. I looked at James Bond. Apparently, Liam Neeson was courted by the Bond producers in the mid-1990s to play the role before Pierce Brosnan accepted it. And he, I don't know if it's jokingly, but he claims that his late wife, Natasha Richardson, said she wouldn't marry him if he took the role of James Bond, so he turned it down. And then as far as an Alfred Hitchcock connection, um, we have the actress Teresa Wright, who played Diane Keaton's grandmother, who, interestingly enough, she was 27 years older than Diane Keaton and played her grandmother. In 1943, Teresa Wright starred in a great Alfred Hitchcock movie called Shadow of a Doubt, and she also appeared on two episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour in 1964. And then as far as a personal connection, I like telling the story just because it was funny. I was getting, it was either an allergy shot or visiting my um, orthodontist who were in the same building. And I was on the street walking back to my car and I walked past Diane Keaton in a crosswalk. And I'd heard that supposedly she was one of those people that likes to be completely covered up. And she had a big floppy hat and long sleeve shirt and gloves on her hand. And she was eating an ice cream cone because there was a Baskin Robbins across the street. And it's one of those ones where you do the double take and you're like, was that? Yep, that was Diane Keaton that just walked by me on the street. Hi, Alex. How's school? Oh, wow. Keep up the good work. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I'm fine. Things are going very well. Oh, Molly's very good. I just want to thank you for asking. It's just so sweet of you. She's getting to be real big, Alex. See you later. Good talking to you. Um, So in conclusion, we always like to say... 
were these films worthy of a Disney label? Like, were they smart to push them off onto Touchstone? We mentioned that Good Mother was R-rated, Heartbreak Hotel was PG-13, a little bit of foul language. I don't know. I, I can't see either of these movies being released by Disney. I mean, we, didn't we talk about in the very first episode that one of the last movies Disney made before Touchstone was Never Cry Wolf, which featured male frontal nudity? And so could Good Mother have been a Disney film? I, I have a hard time believing that. No, I don't think Good Mother fits anywhere in the Disney Dis, Disney universe. You know, yeah. the Touchstone kid that lives in the back shed films, that that's the Good Mother. And I can understand why... They would have made The Good Mother. I'm sure they were hoping yeah. for a lot of Oscar or award. Oh, sure. I mean, that seemed like a total Oscar bait film. And uh, for whatever le- reason, it just uh, did not connect. Well, like I said, they bought, if they bought the rights to the book before it was even published, and it turned out to be a New York Times bestseller, so sure. I mean, you would have. You know, we're going to discuss on the next episode another literary adaptation that got some awards consideration as well that Touchstone had put out. But And then. As far as what other movies did, we always like to look and see if Disney put out anything else at the same time. And no, not, not, there's no reissues. The only the next Disney movie that gets put out is in the end of November, so we can talk about that on the next episode. Um, but on that next episode, what will we be talking about? Well, we get the return of Ernest P. Worrell. Oh, it's a Christmas miracle with his highest-grossing Ernest movie, which is surprising, and also a very successful drama, as I mentioned, with a very very notable theme song. Chad, I'm about to wrap up. Do you have anything else you can think of for these two fine films? Uh, I would just say go out and listen to some Alice Cooper. Yes. And on that note, I'll simply say that Out of Touchstone has left the building. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.